Good morning. Imagine with me for just a moment that sometime this next week you all are at your jobs or talking with a friend or just interacting with someone in the community and you mention that you attend Rock Prairie Church. And the person you're interacting with says to you, oh, you attend Rock Prairie. Do you know, you know Jerry Markins? My expectation is that most of you, if you've attended here for very long, would probably say, yeah, I know him. But is that really true? For some of you, it is. Some of you know me primarily from hearing me preach. You know what I look like and the sound of my nasally voice. Some of you know me a little more, maybe because we've had a few conversations. Maybe we've even become friends on Facebook, and so you've seen some things I've posted. You kind of understand how my mind works. Others know me maybe a little deeper yet because we've been in a small group together or we've served on a committee and we've shared some thoughts and feelings in those settings. But how many of you would say that you really know me? There are some. That smoking hot lady right over there would be at the top of the list. <laughs> but for most of you, the honest answer would be more like, I, I kind of know, we're, we're acquaintances, but I don't know him. And the same, I think, is true for almost all of us gathered here. 300 plus people, probably. There's a few people that know us. We can recognize each other and call each other by names, but how many people here really know you? No doubt there are some, but probably not all. Why is that? Well, for lots of reasons. For one, it takes a lot of time to truly get to know someone, right? To learn about their life, what they've experienced, what their victories and failures have been, how they think, what their unique character traits are. It takes time to learn who they're related to and how their family structure has impacted them as they've grown up what their hobbies are, what they'd do if they suddenly won the lottery. This list could go on and on. And quite honestly, we just don't have the time, right, to get to know 300-plus people this deeply. We just don't have that much time in our lives. But there's other reasons why not many people really know us. Maybe the most important one is that for people to get to know us, we have to be willing to let them get to know us. We have to be vulnerable. We have to let them see behind the curtain what makes us tick. And quite honestly, we don't often like that. In fact, we sometimes even put up barriers so that people can't get to know us. I'll give you a quick example. One of our son-in-laws, when he was just dating our daughter, came from out of town to see her one weekend. And he stayed at our house and he slept on the couch that night. And we had a Shih Tzu who was like a member of our family. You know, the dog was really important to us. And that night when he laid down on the couch to go to sleep, the dog jumped up on top of him and slept on top of him all night long. And of course, we thought it was cool, you know, because our dog is accepting him. Or maybe he's just making sure he doesn't go to Abby's room. I don't know. But <laughs> in our mind, it was cool. You know, the dog was accepting him. What we didn't know until many months later was that he thought dogs were dirty animals, and the fact that we even let ours on the furniture disgusted him. <laughs> now, he probably should have told us that, right? But at that time, he didn't want us to know him that well yet, because he hadn't set the hooks in our daughter quite yet. 
it was obvious to him how much we cared for our dog. And he was afraid that if he was honest about that, that it might cut off the relationship with Abby. We might reject him. Funny story, he now has a 100-pound golden doodle in his house. (laughs) Things we do for love, right? But do you see my point? The truth is that for people to know us, we have to become vulnerable. We have to become open and honest about who we are, what we like and what we don't like, even if those things are different from the person who we're trying to get to know. Even if it might lead to them rejecting us, we have to be open and honest about who we are and what we, what we like, what we don't like. So we put up barriers. And whether we admit it or not, there's at least one other reason why we put up barriers. It's because many of us struggle with a sense of unworthiness. We're tempted to believe that we're not worthy of being known and loved by others. We think of ourselves as not pretty enough, or not athletic enough, or not smart enough, or not wealthy enough, or not thin enough, or not spiritual enough. Or we think to ourselves, that person is a really good person. If they knew what I was really like, they, they wouldn't want to know me. So we put up barriers to people knowing us because we feel unworthy and we fear rejection. That's why in today's world we've seen the huge success of social media, right? Because we can put only what we want out there and never really let people see behind the curtain. We can have hundreds of friends and almost no one that really knows us. And while it's true that we put those barriers up intentionally, at the same time, doing so can leave us feeling empty and alone and wondering things like, do people really want to know me? Am I worthy of being known? And do I even matter? So if you're here today and any of this is resonating with you, you're tempted to ponder those kinds of questions, then I think you're in the right place. Because this morning we're going to be looking at the 139th Psalm, which speaks to those topics. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms 139. We're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 6. I hear actual pages turning. Not everyone has an electronic Bible today. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. In these opening six verses, there are several phrases that build upon one another and lead us to the conclusion that God knows each one of our stories intimately. And it begins with this, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, this is one of those places where, in my estimation, language has its limitations. Because I don't really think God is like a detective with a magnifying glass and a little notebook that he writes things down in, searching for clues about what we're like. He doesn't need to do that, right? Because he's God and he created us. He knows what we're like. 
But this is the best way David can put into words God's omniscience, his infinite knowledge. He's saying it's essentially it's as if you have searched every nook and cranny of my life. That's too far. And then he goes on to say, God knows when we sit down and when we rise up. There's not a movement we can make with our bodies that God is not aware of. When you wiggle your toes, he knows. Came up with that all on my own. <laughs> he knows what we're thinking silently inside our heads. He scrutinizes our paths. It's more than just knowing where we're going. He scrutinizes our path. He dissects every detail. He knows where we're going, what's going to happen on the way, and what's going to happen when we get there. He knows when we're lying down, how much sleep we get or don't get, what time we get up. He's intimately acquainted with all our ways, everything we think, say, or do. He even knows the words we're going to speak, the exact words that are going to come out of our mouths before we even say them. So it's easy to see why David would begin this passage with, you have searched me and known me, right? But then finally, David says something that gets completely lost in translation from Hebrew to English. He says, you've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And the reason I say something gets lost there is that when I read these words, I think of them as David expressing like a comforting thought, right? God, you have enclosed me behind and before. I feel protected. That's not what he's saying at all. The word David used, the, the word that the NASB translates as enclosed me is the Hebrew word sor, T-S-O-O-R, which means confined bound or besieged, like a city under besiege of a, of a foreign army. And the word he uses for hand is the word calf, which actually means the palm of the hand or the sole of the foot. So what David is actually saying here is that reflecting on all God knows about him, including his impure thoughts, his sinful actions, his negative attitudes, the places he's been that he never should have gone his sinful words, the sum total of his life's sin, knowing that makes him feel confined or besieged under the palm of God's hand like a bug that's about to get squashed. And then he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to it. And again, this isn't a, a thought of comfort. It's David saying, since the omniscient God of all creation has all this information about me, I feel powerless, like a bug about to be squashed under God's palm. And that brings us to verse 7. Let's read the next six verses. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, 
Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now, keeping in mind all that we just learned from the first six verses, that God is omniscient, that he has all knowledge, and he's intimately acquainted with all our ways, and that David, in reflecting on these thoughts, was feeling powerless like a bug about to be squashed under the hand of God, what emotion do you think is being expressed in verse 7, where David writes, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? It's fear, right? It's fear. How can I escape? Where can I hide? If God is truly acquainted with all my ways, he knows I'm a hypocrite. He's heard my lies. He knows that thought that I just had. He knows what I did last week. David's fear of total exposure forced him to, to question, how can I get away? Where can I hide? And the conclusion he comes to is that he'll never be able to hide. Because not only is God omniscient, he's also omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. So he writes, if I ascend to heaven, he's there. If I make my bed in the grave, he's there. If I go up into the sky or even the deepest part of the sea, he's there too. There's no escape from the omnipresent God. And that thought is terrifying. But then, finally, we come to a thought of comfort in verses 9 and 10. David writes, If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. So here we have a change in language. No longer is David just saying of God, If I go here, you're there. This time he says, Your hand will lead me. That's guidance. And your right hand will hold on to me. That's security. And you know what that means? It means God doesn't just know us, but also that in spite of our unworthiness, God chooses to be near to us. He offers us his grace, which include the benefits of his guidance and his security. Jesus is not repelled by our sin. He doesn't want us to run away and hide. Instead, he loves his creation so much that he made a way for us to be washed of our sin, to have it removed. Over and over in the Bible, we see this confirmed. We're called God's beloved, his chosen, his dearly loved children. And we're told that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My brothers and sisters, God knows us, and he chooses to be near us anyway. Let's look at the next six verses, beginning with verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. 
How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, in any passage of Scripture we study, it seems there are always rabbit trails we could go off and explore. Now, they're not really the main point, but they're interesting things to explore, and I generally try to avoid that. I try to stay on task. But today with this passage, circumstances in our world dictate that I first need to stop and take a moment to go on a rabbit trail. So everything I'm about to say is surrounded by parentheses, okay? The six verses I just read speak of a God who is not only omniscient and omnipresent, but also omnipotent, possessing all power, including the power to create life and to determine the exact millisecond when that life will end. These verses destroy every argument that could be made for evolution. People didn't evolve. From the beginning of time, God has personally designed each and every human being. He gives each and every one their systems of muscles and their skeleton, their heart, their blood vessels, their lungs, their reproductive organs, bones, skin. He gives us cute little noses and ears, fingerprints that are different from everybody else's. The simplicity of all this, these system, body systems combined with the complex ways they interact with one another can't help but point us to the fact that we are created. But God doesn't just stop there because we're not just collections of stuff and systems and proteins and minerals. Instead, each, inside each of those human bodies, God also places an eternal soul. And he says of mankind that we, unlike any of his other creations, are created in his image. And because all of those things are true, these verses also eliminate every argument imaginable for elective abortion. If it's true that the omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent God we've been talking about is actively shaping a baby inside its mother's womb, creating it in his image, then there isn't even a question about whether we as humans have the right to take that life. We don't. So today I'm thankful for the five Supreme Court justices who just a few weeks ago were willing to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. Let's pause a second time. This is the harder part. Because I do understand that in very rare instances, there are some deeply emotional and ethical questions that arise when we're talking about elective abortion. It's the stuff we always hear, right? A pregnancy that arises from a rape or incest. And thank goodness, though it's rare for pregnancy to arise in those situations, but as followers of Christ, we can't put our heads in the sand and pretend that it doesn't happen. We live in a fallen world, and terrible things happen in this world. We can't be flippant in our discussions of how difficult it would be to make clear-headed decisions when placed in some of those situations. Just this week, there was a news story that some of you may be aware of that a 10-year-old girl from Ohio became pregnant because of sexual abuse. Was maybe coming to to the state of Indiana to get an abortion. I don't even know if that story's true. And there's been some speculation later in the week that maybe it was just fabricated. But I pondered that situation this week because things like that do happen, right? 
I've been literally brought to tears as the father of four daughters, all of whom I love more than life itself. I can't imagine the rage I would feel on behalf of my child placed in that situation. And I've wondered about the effects of pregnancy on a 10-year-old girl's body. What long-term health effects would she suffer? Would she even be able to survive? And again, from a human perspective, I'm outraged that this girl might be placed in this situation. More importantly, I can't imagine the emotional pain for any woman after suffering violence, sexual violence, and then finding herself with child. So please understand that what I'm about to say is not coming from a place of judgment. I'm not casting any stones. I'm wrestling with these questions right along with the rest of the world. And the question I'm asking is, how does God's word apply to situations like that? And if we ask that question and we're honest, the first thing we're confronted with is the reality that if the omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent God is the creator of all life, then that includes life that results from sexual violence. He's no less involved in knitting that child together in its mother's womb than he is any other. That child, even though conceived in violence or abuse, is an image bearer of God. And this is the reality that we have to struggle with. It's not something that's easy to think about. And I'm not going to tell you how to feel about it. But I'm going to encourage you to spend time in the coming days and weeks wrestling with that question. And the question isn't, how do I feel about this from a human perspective? But rather, what does God's word say? How does God view that child who he's knitting together, bearing his image, and who had no choice in how they were conceived? I know it's a difficult topic, and we all probably have some strong gut reactions right off the bat as we're confronted with it, but God doesn't give us the option of not dealing with difficult questions, because my job as a follower of Christ is to examine God's word, to discern his will, and then to bring my thoughts and my emotions in line with what God's will is, right? All right, I know that was a Really hard rabbit trail. Pastor Mike is going to be teaching a class on current events and hot-button topics coming up if you sign up for that class. I sincerely hope this is a topic that gets covered. You're welcome, Pastor Mike, wherever you are. (laughs) In parentheses. All right. So let's return to our main points, which are God knows you, God chooses to be near you, and as we've just discussed, God created you. But there's still more. Because God didn't just create you so that you could merely exist. Look at verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You know how most of us read that verse? I think the way we read it is that God created us, and he predetermined when we're going to die. But that's incomplete. There's more. God doesn't just create a life and then kind of set the timer, right? The words David uses in this passage convey that God has actual plans for the days of our lives. It says he's written in his book not just the day David would die, 
but all the days that were ordained for him. God had plans for David, and the same is true for us. God has predetermined boundaries and fashioned opportunities into our lives for his glory and for our good. His purpose and plan is for you to live life in Christ to the fullest. So let's stop here again and review all that we've learned. God knows you. He's omniscient. He chooses to be near you. He's omnipotent. He created you and has a plan for you. He's omnipotent. I said omnipotent. It was omnipresent. It should have been the second one. Although we don't have time to review the last six verses of this chapter in their entirety, I do want us to notice the last thing David writes in verses 23 and 24. After taking all that he understands about God into consideration, David says in those verses, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. He says, God, I want to be pleasing to you. Help me to walk in the center of your will. Putting all this together, how do these verses speak to us in terms of the fact that we have a tendency to put up barriers to other people knowing us? How do these verses speak to us in terms of the questions we ask? Do people really want to know me? Am I worthy? And do I matter? And I think they speak to those things in, a, in several ways. First, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't just enter into a relationship with God. We enter into a relationship with also His whole family. And part of God's plan for His family is that His family members will put down roots in a local church where we can be loved and encouraged, and taught, and corrected, and accepted, and built up, and prayed for, and have our burdens shared. And taking this even one step further within that local church, God's plan also involves His Spirit uniquely gifting each member of His family. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 to 7 say this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The common good of who? It's the local church community, right, that God has placed you in. It's God who has put together this body of people that we call Rock Prairie Church, just like he's done for every other local church. And he's placed people who he has created, who he knows, who he chooses to be near within those churches. And he's given each of them special gifts of his spirit for the common good, gifts that complement one another. We don't all have the same gifts for a reason. Some have the gift of hospitality and some administration, some evangelism, some teaching, some faith, some giving. You get the picture. And it's only when we're living out God's plans for our lives and exercising our gifts in community that God's church functions as it should. So do people really want to know you? Are you worthy of being known? Do you matter? 
I think Psalm 139 answers all those questions resoundingly. You matter. You matter to God and you matter to His church. In fact, God's plans for His church are tied to you. So even though it might be impossible to truly and deeply know all 300 plus people who attend Rock Prairie, it is time for us to begin to let down boundaries, let down barriers. It's time to take risks, to invite new people into our lives. It's time to consider that as deeply flawed as we all are, if God, who knows everything about us, all our faults and failures, and yet remains near to us, God, who created us and has a plan for us, if he thinks we matter enough to send his son on our behalf and to place us together in a local church, and to uniquely equip each of us with gifts of his spirit for the common good, don't you think it's possible that other deeply flawed people who God also created and knows and is near to and has a plan for and has gifted might not just want to get to know you, but might need to get to know you? I do, because we all matter. And it's only when we work together as God, that God's family functions as it should. God has a plan for his church, and it involves you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here and to look into your word. And Lord, for those who have asked these questions, do I, do I matter? Am I worthy? Do people want to know me? I pray that they would know that... that the truth, Lord, that you are the creator of the universe and you wanted to know them. And if you want to know them and you've gifted them and you've placed them here, Lord, there are other people too. So, Father, help us to walk in this knowledge, help us to walk in this truth, help this church to function the way you've called us to function, using our gifts together in community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.